Hello, everybody. My name is Eric Mercier. I am co-owner of Juice Imports, uh, and I'm going to walk you through this month's Natural Wine Club. This is our third year doing the Natural Wine Club, so we're super excited um, to welcome you with three new wines. Um, we'll start off today by talking about Dirty and Rowdy's Familiar Mouvedre. This wine is coming from California. Um, Hardy Wallace, the owner slash winemaker at the winery, um, he's actually located in Petaluma, California, so in the Sonoma Valley. But his actual vineyards that he's working with are all over California. Um, Hardy probably drives more than any other winemaker uh, in all of California, everywhere from El Dorado County, um, which is sort of almost beneath uh, Lake Tahoe. Uh, so think about almost on the on the border with Nevada. Um, so you have to drive up through the mountains. So you have areas like that that he's working with, areas like Mendocino. So Mendocino is, is north of Sonoma and Napa. Um, up here you have really interesting volcanic soils. Uh, some of, I, I think California has three active volcanoes and I think two of them are in Mendocino County. So um, that area is hugely important. Uh, and then he also is getting grapes from from further south around sort of the Lime Kiln Valley um, in that sort of area. So uh, central California, so between San Francisco and Los Angeles. Um, because of this, uh, he has to travel around a lot, but he also gets a wide variety of fruit sources, which is really interesting when making a blend from multiple vineyards like this. So you have, uh, you know, grapes grown on limestone soils, which tend to give you brighter, fresher fruit characteristics. They often uh, are a little bit lower in pH, meaning that the wines seem literally fresher on the palate versus you have other grapes grown on, like we were talking about earlier, on volcanic soils, which tend to uh, elevate the pH. So it makes wines that um, seem more richer, more bassy. Um, often more rustic as well. And so by blending from multiple different vineyards, he's able to make something that he finds really well balanced. And, you know, we just happen to agree with that. Uh, the grape variety that he's working with, at least for the most part here, is Mouvedre. Mouvedre is a grape variety that comes from Spain, technically. Um, it was once called Mataro. Uh, is often called Monastrel in Spain, so you'll see it under any of those three names, Mouvedre, Monastrel, um, and Mataro. And, uh, and you'll often find it in both in Spain, but also in the Rhone Valley in France. So wines like uh, Chateau Pop. Um, will often have a little bit of Mouvedre in them to add intensity, add structure. And so because most grapes have uh, have migrated at this point, we've ended up with small amounts of Mouvedre in California. And Hardy, almost by accident, decided that he wanted to focus on this particular grape variety. Originally, in his first vintage, uh, which was about a decade ago now, I guess, um, he wanted to make... Uh, Gamay Noir. He was a really big fan of Beaujolais and still is a big fan of Beaujolais, but wanted to make something light and fresh and thirst-quenching, uh, energetic in the style of Beaujolais that he really loved. And unfortunately, at the last minute, the uh, grape grower that he was working with was unable to sell him um, the grapes. I can't totally remember the reason. It was either um, 
I, I think they had a, a bad year for um, for some sort of disease or something like that. So the grapes weren't in, in a quality worth making wine from. Um, fortunately, very last minute, uh, right when Hardy had sort of given up on making wine for that season, uh, he was offered a small amount of Mouvedre and... He was like, well, I still want to make these light, fresh, juicy wines that are reminiscent of Beaujolais, but maybe I can do that with Mouvedre instead of, of Gamay Noir. And uh, basically, he just fell in love with the grape. He's like, wow, this grape is really fantastic. It works really well in California. And sort of our understanding of what Mouvedre is supposed to taste like isn't necessarily accurate. Um, most of the famous Mouvedres in the world... Um, are very bombastic. They're usually very high in alcohol, so usually somewhere between 14 and 15%, if not higher than that. They tend to be black as night. Uh, they tend to be quite tannic. They tend to be quite rustic, um, almost this smoky, gamey quality to them. And that's just sort of what we accepted was how Mouvedre was supposed to be made. But really, that was just one of the, the I don't know, sort of personalities that Mouvedre could have. By harvesting a little bit earlier and by fermenting 100% whole cluster, meaning that they're they're not taking the grapes off the stems, um, Hardy's been able to make these really elegant versions of Mouvedre that are still true to what Mouvedre is supposed to be and still show a ton of terroir. So they actually show, you know, they actually taste like what the where the vineyards are, um, d- you know, and then they've somehow made this grape variety into a style that they actually want to drink. Uh, which is really exciting for us. The familiar Mouvedre is sort of their entry-level blend. Um, it's not exactly entry-level from a price point or qualitative perspective, but entry-level in the sense that uh, their single vineyard wines are usually around you know, $75 to $80 Canadian um, versus this one's like half that. Um, so this is a blend from you know roughly six different vineyards, five or six different vineyards depending on the year. Um, from all over California, just designed to be sort of the the most well-rounded wine that they make. The wine that's for maybe earlier consumption, um, that's just fun and joyous and something that you can kind of drink all the time. Uh, as far as tasting profile goes on this, I find that Mouvedre, especially when harvested early like this, has this beautiful spice characteristic to it. Um, we always talk about it being almost like cinnamon or allspice, something kind of in that range. Um, almost this anise, like toasted star anise characteristic to it. Um, but also lots of fruit. This is definitely a fruit driven wine. Lots of plums, lots of those sort of medium fruits, like not super rich and jammy, but definitely not on the, on the tart end of the spectrum either. Um, it's just juicy and super well-rounded. So we're really excited to be, uh, to get to work with this wine. When we first started working with uh, with Dirty and Rowdy, it was a big relief for me because I was on their mailing list and would order wine from them, and I'd have to drive down to uh, Montana to actually go pick it up uh, because they didn't ship to Canada, obviously. And I still really wanted to drink the wines, and then eventually Hardy agreed to actually sell us some wine. So we're one of the few places that he actually exports to, so we feel really lucky that we get to work with them. Additionally... Um, if you happen to really like this wine, uh, for the next couple weeks here, we're actually donating 100% of the proceeds from Dirty and Rowdy's Familiar uh, Mouvedre to uh, the Black Health Alliance. Um, it's a cause that we think is really amazing that helps 
uh, advocate for a handful of really important issues. One being that, um, you know, even though we expect doctors and other healthcare workers to um, maybe not have biases, it's definitely proven time and time again that uh, that they do. Um, and so, basically, black people are getting worse uh, service, getting less access to the medicines that they need and the treatments that they need than white people are. And so they're huge advocates for uh, basically studying racism within the health healthcare system. Um, not only that, but they're doing things on a legislative level, um, which is, again, trying to find ways in which um, black people are discriminated against uh, in Canada that limits their access to healthcare um, or puts them in in positions where they uh, have less or worse ask access to healthcare, uh, and then the final thing that they're doing is just trying to raise awareness about some of the issues that um, black doctors and other black healthcare workers would be facing, whether that be access to funds, whether that be access to education, whether that be discrimination um, from the perspective of. Um, their actual patients. Uh, and so it's just trying to raise awareness about all these different things. And so we're actually donating 100% of our proceeds. We're not keeping a cent um, on this wine. Uh, so if any of you would like to order a couple extra bottles, just know that all the money from that uh, is going to be going towards um, Black Health Alliance. And you can see, uh, we'll, we'll include a link for you guys to go visit if you're interested in donating for your own personal purposes or just want to learn more about it. Um, so that's our first wine this month. The second wine this month that we're going to talk about is Valentina Pasolacqua uh, and her Rosa Terra. So Valentina Pasolacqua, I got to try these wines for the first time um, last year while I was in Montreal. And basically, I got off the plane uh, and went directly to a restaurant because that seems to be the way that it works when I'm in Montreal. And um, I sat down at uh, Le Vin Papillon, a uh, really famous natural wine bar owned by the guys from Joe Beef. Um, they have the most insane selection of all time. And basically three of the wines that they had on by the glass that day were from Valentina Pasolacqua. And I was like, okay, cool. I obviously need to try these if you guys are this excited about them. And I was immediately blown away. Um, they served me uh, a sparkling orange wine from her that was just super energetic, really fun, really kind of goofy style. Uh, they served me her uh, entry-level red, which is um, kind of just rustic and really gastronomic and is, is exactly what you'd expect to find at, um, you know, like kind of like the Italian equivalent of like a little corner bistro or something like that. Just something that you're drinking by the jug full, uh, which is also why it comes in one liter bottles, which I think is very appropriate, uh, yet still has complexity, still has a sense of place. Um, and then the last wine that I tasted was uh, this sort of more rustic style rosé. Um, it was a little bit deeper, a little bit more savory, a little bit more structured. Um, it kind of reminded me a lot of Bordeaux in a lot of strange ways. Uh, and I was just immediately like, hey, these are super cool, really excited. And so I left there, uh, you know, took a nice sobering walk down the street uh, to Elena, um, which is one of my other favorite restaurants in in Montreal. You should definitely visit next time you're there. 
um, they are making some of the best pizza and pasta that I've ever had in my entire life. And not only that, but they're really connected to the people actually growing the grains um, and who are, I believe, milling it specially for them so that they can get the right consistency to make like the best dough on the planet. Uh, it's definitely some of the best pizza I've ever had. And I was literally by myself and had already had dinner and I went and crushed an entire pizza, uh, which goes to show just how amazing it is. And there, uh, in their little like basement pop-up bar area, um, Valentina was actually doing uh, a little event. And so they had all her wines by the glass there as well. So I was like, okay, cool. Well, basically my two favorite restaurants in Montreal, um, whose lists are written by people that I really respect and, and you know, sort of look up to, uh, these places were all really excited about Valentina Pasolacqua's wines. And so the next day at the Raw Wine Festival, I went uh, and tried to taste her wines, but there was such a huge crowd around her that there was no way of me actually getting in to talk to her. So I was like, okay, cool, that's fine. I know that they're good. Maybe I'll send her an email after this. It'd be nice to meet her in person, but honestly, it doesn't look like I'll even get a chance. She's just like... She's too popular. She's too culty. And uh, so the next day, the final day of the Raw Wine Festival, um, I was just about to leave and I was looking to go say bye to uh, Alex Craighead, the winemaker for Kindeli, because um, uh, he was pouring at the event as well. And so I found him and he was actually talking to Valentina Pasolacqua. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm definitely going to be late for my flight at this rate. Uh, I need to leave right now. And he was like, oh, like, have you met Valentina? Have you tasted her wines? I was like, I tasted your wines yesterday uh, or the day before. They were absolutely amazing. I really love everything that you're doing. It's a shame that we didn't have a time, uh, a chance to chat. And she's like, oh, like, uh, where do you work? And I told her in Alberta. And she's like, well, we're not represented in Alberta. And, um, you know, Alex is saying super nice things about your guys' company. Uh, here's my card. Send me an email. Uh, maybe we can work together. And I was just immediately like jaw hit the floor. I was like, oh, my goodness, this is so exciting. But also I was going to be so late for my flight. So I embarrassingly had to excuse myself in the conversation only 30 seconds in and, uh, you know, run and grab my bags and stuff and, and take off. So um, that was sort of the whirlwind of me getting introduced to her wines. And uh, we finally contacted her. We didn't have room in the portfolio at the end of last year. Um, but at the start of this year, we kind of made some room in our budget and uh, found out a way to order some of her wines. And I think we ordered eight different wines on the first uh, on the first shipment, and I think we have another four or five new ones coming in on our second shipment, which should be here in about a month and a half. Um, but immediately, everybody just fell in love with her wines. She's a really interesting story. Um, I believe her her family owned uh, like a marble quarry uh, in Puglia. And she ended up going uh, to London to work for like 10 years, like a decade or something like that, and uh, was kind of living in the rat race, um, you know, working super hard and, and working in this sort of, you know, urban environment like this, this metropolis that London has turned into. And uh, when she had uh, her first daughter, she just sort of came to this realization like, hey, maybe this is not the world for me. Maybe this is not the best. Maybe this is not the environment in which I would like to to raise a child. And uh, she realized that she wanted to be connected with nature again. Um, she grew up in Puglia, which is in itself is quite rural for the most part. 
um, lots of uh, agriculture done there. It's considered the breadbasket of uh, of Italy in a lot of ways, other than Sicily, um, because there's really fertile soils, because they grow a lot of grapes there, um, and it's still fairly inexpensive because it's it's sort of far removed from everything. And so she felt like she wanted to get back to this more simplistic way of life, this way where she could connect with nature, where she could raise her daughter in an environment that she really believed in. And so she uh, went back home uh, to her hometown, basically, uh, the place that she grew up, which is underneath the Gargano Mountains um, and right next to the Adriatic Sea. So the ultimate ideal place to go visit if you get a chance. Uh, I know that I would like to book a flight there whenever that becomes a a possibility again. Uh, Definitely worth checking out. And so she moved back there and and she started doing this very traditional style of agriculture. So farming organically and biodynamically, not only that, but growing grapes on uh, some of her grapes on a pergola system, which is the really old school Italian way of doing it where um, it's literally a pergola. So like uh, imagine um, almost like tunnels of grapevines that you can walk underneath and they actually grow up and overhead on this trellis. Uh, and so the grapes actually hang down in between in this tunnel and you can harvest them that way. And you can also grow things on the ground in between your rows of vines. It's kind of the ultimate version of uh, permaculture. And uh, it's just such a thoughtful way of making wine. And I, I get really excited about stuff like that. The wine that we chose to include in this club was the one that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about all her wines in the portfolio, but this one I just thought was like, perfect for this time of year. It just screams summer. Um, It's one of the most joyous wines that I've ever tasted. Um, This is her Rosaterra. So this is in theory a rosé, but honestly it's like kind of somewhere between rosé and red wine stylistically. Um, It's made from a grape called uh, Nero di Troia. Nero di Troia is an indigenous grape variety, meaning that it actually comes from this region Unlike most grapes that are planted uh, basically anywhere in the world, um, this was not an imported grape variety. This this literally evolved to survive in this particular climate. Um, Nero de Troya can make like a handful of different styles, but I think in this this rosé, uh, it's absolutely beautiful. It's only 11.5% alcohol, so harvested quite early in order to retain freshness and vibrancy. Um, and then fermented exclusively in tank uh, instead of in barrel or anything like that. They basically want to prevent this wine from oxidizing in any way, so it uh, just allows the wine to be super fresh and really vibrant and really fruit-driven. From a flavor perspective, I'm super excited about this wine because it has this quality of, uh, you know, like those like hot lips or like uh, any of those like cinnamon candies that you can think of. Uh, It's got this amazing combination of like, spice and and sweet juicy fruit um but at the same time this wine has like zero grams per liter of sugar it's it's completely bone dry but gives you this illusion of sweetness because of almost this pomegranate cherry pie kind of quality it's completely confounding like i everybody who i know who has picked up a bottle so far has immediately sent me a message uh a text with a picture of the bottle being like how does this even exist how is this even fair that she can make wines like this uh and i have no idea i i don't know how she's able to to do it um as far as pairings go for this particular wine it's extremely versatile whether you just want to crush it on its own um whether you want to have it with like 
you know, fish tacos or something like that. Also a really great option. Uh, I'm trying to remember what I actually wrote down as far as pairings. I think I said something about shrimp, uh, which I think is awesome. I always like pairing wines with foods of the same color. I think that there's something about that that just works 95% of the time. Uh, so if you get some some good prawns and, uh, you know, grill them on the barbecue with, with the old school Old Bay, I feel like that would be a really radical combo for uh for this particular wine. Uh, the last wine that we're gonna talk about today is not imported by us. Um, every month, not every month, but almost every month, we try and include wines imported by some of our friends um, from around the province. We think that there's a lot of people doing really good work and we wanna encourage people to continue importing wines that are made ethically in a way that we believe in. and by putting them in the wine club, it's a, a really great way of, I don't know, uh, affirming their decision to to work with these, uh, you know, ethically made wines. Um, so this is coming from uh, Garneau Block, which is uh, our friend Gabriella. Uh, she's an importer up in Edmonton. Um, and this was a winery that we originally were going to bring in maybe like th- two or three years ago, I guess. Um, and decided not to because um, they had basically just started making natural wine. They were really new to it. Um, their prices at the time were a little bit challenging for export, but now two or three years later, they've really come into their own. Uh, they've been making natural wine for you know years now, have learned a ton of things, and uh, because of that, the scalability has also made their prices a lot more appealing. So we're really thrilled that uh, Gabriella started working with these guys because uh, we're always huge fans. Um, this is Old Westminster is the name of the winery. Uh, they're actually in Maryland. Uh, the interesting thing that I always like to tell people is that there's actually wine made from grapes grown in all 50 states. Uh, that includes Alaska and Hawaii. Uh, you can grow grapes in a wide variety of different climates. Um, there's at least one commercial winery in each of those uh, states, and in most cases, a lot more. Uh, a lot of places where you wouldn't expect to see a ton of wineries, like Virginia, for instance, uh, they have a ton of wineries. Places like Texas, ton of wineries. Uh, and so there, there's wine made absolutely everywhere. So the fact that we're only sort of familiar with maybe Washington, Oregon, and California, maybe in some cases, New York state, um, it's actually surprising that we, we don't see more wines from other states. Uh, but hopefully we'll start seeing them on the market in the, in the near future here. So this is an exciting first for us in the wine club. Um, this wine called Come Together is a really interesting combination of things, and it, it kind of offers us two opportunities to talk about grapes um, and winemaking style. So the first thing we'll talk about is hybrid grape varieties. So they're working with a grape variety called uh, Chambourcin, um, which is a hybrid. So a hybrid is basically when you take uh, European grape varieties, so Vitis vinifera, uh, and you cross it with uh, a grape variety from somewhere else in the world, usually a North American grape variety, although there are some grapes indigenous to um, to Asia as well, um, but usually crossing it with a local grape variety. So basically what happened was, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago at this point, actually, uh, or 150 years ago, I suppose, um, what happened was we started bringing over grapevines to, uh, right? No, maybe it was like 
200 plus years ago. Um, anyways, we brought grapevines over to North America from Europe and we planted them in the ground thinking that this would be an ideal place to grow grapes and all the grapevines died and nobody could figure out why that was happening. Then what ended up happening was all the grapevines in Europe started dying and we still couldn't figure out what was happening. Uh, once we did figure out what was happening, it was a vine louse called phylloxera. So phylloxera, um, again, it's like this like tiny little insect with a super complicated life cycle. Uh, it has stages where it can fly. It has stages where it buries, uh, burrows under the ground. It has stages where um, it's breeding like mad and others where it's more dormant. Um, and so this thing is like impossible to kill. Everything that we've tried to do to kill this vine louse uh, has failed. I believe at some point, uh, something like 80% of the vines in Europe died uh, because of this thing. It, it basically decimated the wine industry and we've actually never recovered from it. There is still not as many vineyards planted as there were um, back in you know the 1850s, 1880s, when this little vine louse finally made its way uh, from North America uh, to Europe. So what they tried to do was was come up with a solution. And that solution, uh, in some cases, was trying to make hybrid grape varieties because North American grape varieties were immune or at least resistant uh, to this vine louse because they had evolved alongside of it. And so by basically crossing these, these two different grapes, um, you would hopefully end up with something that tasted really good, uh, like the grapes from Europe, but had the resistance of the grape varieties from uh, from North America. Most of the time, this didn't work out. Basically, the wines don't taste very good. Uh, they have a characteristic that they often call foxiness, which is they literally smell like wet foxes. Uh, it's kind of this dank, musky, um, kind of feral quality. And in some cases, it's actually kind of charming. It's not as bad as, uh, as they would make it out to be. Uh, and then the other quality is, uh, and I can't remember the name of the compound, but it's like the thing that makes Welch's grape juice taste like Welch's grape juice. It's that super grapey, candied quality to it um, that's really hard to sort of wrap your head around in wine because it, it just makes the wines taste simple. It's kind of hard to let any of the other characteristics shine through. And so basically these hybrid, hybrid grape varieties didn't take off that much. Um, they're still planted a lot in colder regions because that's the only way that people can grow grapes and, and make wine is by uh, crossing with these grape varieties that are really cold hardy as well as resistant to phylloxera. But ultimately what most of the world decided to do was start grafting their vines. So they would take Vitis vinifera um, from you know the ground up and they would graft it onto, um, onto North American rootstocks. And so everything from the ground down, all the roots would be this North American um, grape variety, which is resistant to these, you know, vine lesses that are that are in the soil most of the time. Uh, and it basically allowed people to start growing grapes again. Uh, it is still the way that, you know, 99.9% .9 of vineyards on the planet are grown. Um, they're not just Vitis vinifera. They're literally Vitis vinifera with this hybrid um, or North American grape rootstock underneath. 
So it's uh, it's astonishing. And so Chambersin is one of these uh, hybrid grape varieties that is not that grafted style, but literally a crossing between uh, a European grape variety and a North American grape variety. Um, because of that, it kind of has some like wild flavor characteristics. Um, but that's kind of one of the things that makes it super fun. And you're starting to see a big comeback of some of these grape varieties because they are um, unique to North America. Not only that, but a lot of people are actually trying to make wines uh, exclusively from indigenous grape varieties. Uh, so that'll be really exciting to see down the road because I think it'll maybe give us a better expression of terroir uh, from you know a North American perspective. So that's really exciting. The other thing that makes this wine really exciting is that it's also made uh, partially from piquette. Um, piquette is a super old school winemaking technique that was done basically to make uh, extra wine for your staff uh, <laughs> if you're on like a big farm. And so what you would do is after you made uh, red wine or after you crushed the grapes for white wine, you would take the skins and you would soak them in water. And basically some of the, the sugars and some of the flavors would seep out into that water, all the stuff that you weren't able to get out by, by just crushing the grapes. Um, and then you would ferment that grape-infused water into a super low alcohol wine. So these wines would often be, you know, 5 to 7% alcohol, um, if that, somewhere even less. Um, they would often be bottled, you know, slightly fizzy, uh, just to make something that's like bright, fresh, easy drinking, something to drink while you're working on the farm, basically. Um, and they were considered sort of, you know, inferior. They were, they were kind of for the help, um, which is just like absolutely insane because now that we know how to make wine, they're extraordinarily delicious. Um, they're really fun. They're really interesting. They offer an opportunity to drink wines at lower alcohol percentages while still getting a reasonable amount of complexity if you're making them well, which these guys definitely are. So I believe the base um, for the uh, the piquette in this case was Cabernet Franc. Um, so Cabernet Franc is like bright, it's fresh, it's herbaceous. It has all these sort of um, blackberry and black raspberry characteristics to it. Um, and it's it's really energetic and, and kind of wild and foresty. And they've blended that with Blaufrankisch and Chambourcin. Um, so it's a, a really cool combination of grapes that ends up being this like really bright, juicy, kind of wild red wine. Um, it's got a little bit of fizz to it when you first open it, which is not something to be afraid of at all. Um, if you don't like fizz, then just decant it and that'll get rid of the bubbles. Um, you know, it'll go away pretty quick. But if you're like me and you like a little bit of, you know, spritz just to kind of liven up the palate, definitely, you know, pour it straight into a glass and, and enjoy um, for flavor profile on this, it's awesome. Like really like brambly fruit characteristics. Uh, it still has a little bit of that candied characteristic that comes from Chambersin, even though it's completely bone dry. So you'll get almost this like cotton candy, uh, almost like Jolly Rancher kind of note to it that I find really, uh, fun and interesting. Um, and then a little bit of a herbaceousness as well, which is, which is great. Um, the pairing that, uh, that Gabriella included in here, uh, was with pizza. Uh, again, I'm, I'm always of the mindset that if it doesn't go with pizza, then it's not wine. And so I think, uh, pizza is a, a really fair call. Um, you know, I'd say for me, you could, you know, diversify a little bit as well and, and pair it with pretty much anything. 
Uh, I think a lot of the dark fruit characteristics would go well with game meat. Um, so if you're making something like, uh, I had like a really good like venison pot pie, uh, something like that would be really awesome with this wine because it's bright enough and fresh enough to cut through some of the earthy, gamey, um, you know, intense umami characteristics of something like that. Uh, so I think that'd be a really fun combination. But hopefully this will be a, a fun introduction for uh, for Maryland wine for you. Um, if you want to try any of their other wines, definitely hit up Garneau Block. They have a couple other ones on the market, including a, a sparkling orange piquette um, that I find super delicious uh, and some carbonic Cab Franc in a can. Uh, they're definitely, definitely killing it. They're making some super cool things. So that's basically everything I have to say uh, for this month. If you guys have any questions, uh, feel free to send me an email. Uh, my address is eric, E-R-I-K, at juiceimports.com. Uh, or you can send us a message on Instagram. We love when you guys reach out to us. Uh, it's just at juiceimports. Um, or however else you, you want to get in touch. We're really looking forward to being able to do uh, a members-only tasting again. We're just sort of being cautious and waiting for things to truly open up again. We're hoping that maybe we could do them in um, September or October. We're not entirely sure what the what the game plan is going to be yet, but stay tuned for that. Uh, and yeah, thanks again. We really appreciate it. Chat soon. Mm-hmm.